Hello, I'm Carrick MacDonald and this is Halfway to Borough, the Two Towns Local History Show on Cam Glen Radio. The subject of this programme is White's Chemical Company. In this two-part programme, we're going to be talking about one of the most controversial businesses in Rutherland's industrial past. That business was under the control of a single family for well over a hundred years. That family grew enormously wealthy from the profits of the business and they ended up as landed gentry with grand country estates. The people who were employed in the business owned and run by that family didn't fare quite so well. They saw nothing of the vast wealth accumulated by their employers. What they got instead was working a seven-day week for pitiful wages in miserable working conditions which caused appalling damage to their health. There's also the issue of land contamination caused by that business, which remains a problem in the local area, even to this day. This is a classic story of unrestrained capitalism, pursuit of profit at all costs, not just financial costs, but human and environmental costs. It's also a story of hypocrisy and denial. The family in question were the Whites, owners of White's Chemical Company, which was located in Shawfield. To help me tell the story of the White family and White's Chemical Company, I spoke to local amateur historian David Jackson. David was born and bred in Rutherglen. He has a huge knowledge of local history and he has a family connection with White's Chemical Company. In part one of our programme, David began by telling me about the early days of the chemical works at Shawfield and of the first involvement there of the White family. The first character to appear in our story is John White. Well, John White was the son of a surgeon. He was born in Paisley about 1782 and he came to Rutherland circa 1810. He started up a soap and soda works with a local businessman named Gouldy. This factory was situated in the banks of the River Clyde, just off the Glasgow Road, which in those days was known as the Shawfield Road. Sometime about the 1820s, this business venture was said to be failing, but personally, I think White had bigger fish to fry. Anyway, John White and his brother James White of Fairfield and Govan, they bought over the factory and entered into the chemical business, making bichromate of potash, which was produced from chrome-iron ore imported from Turkey and Russia. This product's uses included the manufacturing of paint, dyes for tanning, etc., and the making of chrome products, such as water taps and later stainless steel. The works were first known as Jai and Jai White's Clydeford Chemical Works and were situated only in the east side of the Glasgow Road. However, due to the great success of the business, the Whites eventually bought over almost all of the entire Shawfield estate and by the late 1860s had expanded the works to the west side of Glasgow Road and the firm was now known as Jai and Jai White's Shawfield Chemical Works, covering about 30 acres of land and employing around 600 men. It was now one of the largest chemical works in Great Britain, if not Europe. So far, so good, you might think. The Shawfield works were expanding due to increased demand for White's products. 
just so we can visualise where this place was. The original works were located in what is now Rutherglen Industrial Estate, just off Glasgow Road, and the expansion across the road in the 1860s that David referred to was to ground now partly occupied by Arnold Clark. Until the coming of John White and industrialisation to Shawfield, it was actually quite a nice place to live, if you had the money. And all the, the gentry of this town in the early days are on that side of the street. When this guy moved in down there in 1810, this wee soda water, this was all countrified yeah. and gentry. We we country houses that mm-hmm. they all stayed in, the gentry all stayed in, and eventually, because of his industrialisation in this side, they all got out of there. The expanded works at White's employed hundreds of men. We now know a wee bit about the Whites, but what about the workforce at Shawfield? What kind of people were they? The employees were mostly first and second generation unskilled Irish immigrants who worked who had to work 12 hours a day, seven days a week. Now don't forget, the Whites were Christian people who belonged to the Free Church and uh, to have their employees working these kinds of hours uh, must tell a story. Anyway, they wanted to work an 84 hour week and were paid thruppence or fourpence an hour. You know, that works out at 21 shillings or 28 shillings a week. Now, most likely, at that time, the average wage might be 35 shillings a week, and that's for only a 54 hour week, and that's nine hours a day at seven and a half pence an hour. Now, you must admit, that's some difference. So, the workforce at White's worked long hours for not much money. But that's how things could be in pre-trade union Victorian Britain. And the White family, like many other business owners during that time, were doing rather nicely. Already wealthy, the family saw money pouring in as business boomed at the Shawfield Works. Well, it has to be said, you know, the whole of the White family, they flourished and led very privileged lives. Albeit that they did do, or were seen to do, many philanthropic deeds. The second generation who took over the business were also called John and James. They were the sons of John White Sr. John, the elder of the two, was born in 1810, and his younger brother, James, just two years later. They resided at Hayfield House in Rutherglen and were both educated at Glasgow Grammar School and thereafter at Glasgow University. John became a chemist by profession and along with his father, John Sr., was the main partner in the business up until about 1850. He married late in life but had no family. In 1858, this same man bought their darkest estate up at Loch Long. But by the early 1860s, he was residing in London, although he spent much of his time in the south of France at Monte Carlo. Do you know that it's said that he only really came back to Scotland on fishing and hunting trips? John died at the age of 71 in 1881, and he is buried in London. His younger brother James, who was a writer and lawyer by profession, and was greatly encouraged into the family business by his father and brother about 1850. He had married in 1836 when he was only 24 years old, and had a large family of seven children, six daughters and one son, John Campbell White. They, like their father, were all born in Hayfield and Rutherglen, 
1859, James bought over the Overton estate in Dumbartonshire and erected a beautiful large mansion house in the Scottish baronial style architecture. It took three years to build. Then the entire family moved there in 1862. Thereafter, he was known as James White of Overton. James died in 1884, only three years after his brother John, and is buried in Dumbarton. Working out who's who in the White family isn't helped by the fact that all the men seem to be called either James or John. The second generation John that David talked about seemed to contribute nothing to the business in his later years, while being happy to live off its profits and buy himself a country estate. His brother James, on the other hand, became every inch the Victorian philanthropist and a pillar of the Glasgow establishment. Written in the ponderous language of the time, this is a minute of a meeting of the Town Council of Glasgow, held shortly after his death. The Lord Provost noticed the recent death of Mr James White of Overton, and moved that this meeting resolve to record an expression of its sense of the great loss which the community has sustained by the death of Mr James White of Overton, a gentleman who has long occupied a foremost place among the citizens of Glasgow and taken an active part in the promotion of every good work for which his personal services and liberal contributions were always available. Oddly enough, the architect of Overton House, which James White built, was the father of Madeline Smith, who was at the centre of a sensational murder trial in Glasgow in 1857. Following the passing of James White of Overton, who was next to become head of the Shawfield business? The son John Campbell White, who was born in 1843 at Hayfield, and the only son, now became the senior partner in the business, along with his younger cousin, William James Crystal of Auchendenon. He was the son of Jane Cumming White. John Campbell White also married young, but had no children, and like the rest of his family, Campbell White was a very ambitious and successful man, as only ten years after becoming the senior partner in the business, he was made a life peer in 1893 and took the title of Lord Overton. John Campbell White was an evangelistic Christian and, like the Whites before him, a prominent member of the United Free Church. He's really the central figure in this story. Following his father's death in 1884, he inherited the chemical works at Shawfield along with £1.9 million. Now, even if that figure includes the value of the Overton estate, that's an extraordinary sum of money, even by today's standards. Just before the time of James White of Overton's death, it was becoming clear that working in the chromate manufacturing process was a hazardous occupation, with the main causes and effects being revealed in a government report as early as 1893, the same year John Campbell White became Lord Overton. I'm Carrick MacDonald, and you're listening to Halfway to Borough, the Two Towns local history show on Cam Glen Radio. In this programme, we're talking about White's Chemical Company in Shawfield, in the company of David Jackson. Among the materials used at White's were, apart from the chrome iron ore, which David mentioned, were ferrous ore, limestone, potassium carbonate, sodium carbonate and sulfuric acid. 
the end product was refined into crystals. Processing those materials to produce those crystals gave off toxic clouds of potash of chrome, soda or lime dust, all of which were breathed in by the workforce. Remember that the White family had long since decamped to Overton House, far from the smoke, dust and fumes of the Shawfield Works. Early indications were that these working conditions at White's badly affected the health of the workforce, as David will tell us. Well, mm. White's was both a very unhealthy and dangerous place to work. Some had to work as chrome furnacemen and others as pearl ashmen, others again in the crystal house and again many worked in the acid towers. It was their jobs to do all the lifting, carrying, mixing, stirring and firing the many furnaces and removing the residues. Most of the time amid great heat and noxious fumes. And, it has to be said, many of whom had their health ruined by the chemical processes with which they they worked. In fact, such was the appalling conditions that a great many of the number of men who worked in whites, including my own father, Tommy Jackson, could push a handkerchief up one nostril and bring it down the other due to the cartilage damage done from the inhalation of chemical fumes and toxic gases. I may also add, this also led to respiratory and digestive diseases, ulcerations and even cancer. Evidence was produced that shortening the hours of work and bringing in a three-shift pattern lowered sickness rates amongst chemical workers. Lord Overton's response to this was that if the working hours were reduced, his men would simply spend more time in the pub. His lordship, himself a total abstainer, was a strong advocate of the temperance cause. So, a typical working week for the Shawfield workers remained seven days, twelve hours a day, with no set meal breaks, forcing workers to eat what food they had in areas contaminated by chrome dust. However, not everyone agreed that the responsibility for the poor health of the workers lay with whites. The Rutherglen reformer sided with Lord Overton and wrote that the workers should have taken more care of their personal cleanliness to reduce the levels of illness. Whites largely ignored the special rules and regulations which were introduced for the operation of bichromate works laid down in the 1893 government report. Further attempts by the men to change their working patterns, including getting Sunday off, to reduce time spent in the toxic atmosphere of the Shawfield works, were refused. Whites maintained they couldn't afford to agree to these changes. Although, around this time, Lord Overson's cousin and fellow boss at Whites, William James Crystal, treated himself to a country estate on Loch Lomond, costing £43,000. The workers at Whites got nowhere with the owners in their attempts, including strike action, to improve their pay and working conditions. They turned to Keir Hardy of the Independent Labour Party for support. Keir Hardy wrote an article, and the heading in the article was White Slaves. You know, and... um, it was a time when the man was on his high horses, you know, um, Mr Hardy, and he, he really picked out the, the, the whites, Lord Overton. He, it was during Lord Overton's period of uh, running the business, 
um, which would be when was Keir Hardy born? 1880. So it would be the, the early 1900s or thereabouts. And he wrote this article on the white slaves, uh, talking about just exactly what I've been on about the mm. conditions, yeah. the poor wages, yeah. uh, the uh, the Christian, you know, playing the Christian philanthropists. Sure. And he really slaughtered them. Mm. He slaughtered them, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Hardy was appalled by the goings on at the Shawfield Works. He had a real go at Lord Overton personally, pointing out the hypocrisy in him campaigning for strict observance of the Sabbath while insisting that his employees work a seven-day week, including Sundays. Hardy's white slave pamphlets described in scathing terms the terrible working conditions and the demands placed on the workforce at Shawfield. This is a quote from one of Hardy's pamphlets. I wish I could adequately describe a day's work so that my readers could fully understand its horrors. The men in the day shift go in to begin work at six in the morning. The vapours and the fumes from the chemicals are all about them, all the time now, eating away the cartridge of the nose and poisoning the blood. Dry dust floats in the atmosphere, which gets into the throat and produces an arid, burning feeling. The surroundings estated are all of the gloomy, depressing kind. Once of the hour, the two men who work the furnace have to draw their charge of molten chemicals. At this time, a sweet, poisonous gas is thrown off, which the men inhale every time they breathe. The charge is put into a small truck, which the men draw with a hook, and then at the appointed place. In some cases, this is not more than a few feet from the furnace, and the men have to work with the hot, glowing mass at their back and running furnace in the front. And this goes on all day without a break until six o'clock in the evening. Twelve weary, wretched hours. For it will be scarcely believed, but it is nonetheless true that there are no meal hours allowed for these men. From six in the morning until six at night without a stoppage, it sounds incredible, and yet it cannot be denied. Food has to be snatched in mouthfuls as best the men can, whilst carrying on their never-ceasing task. With their hands soiled with the poisonous chemicals they handle, inhaling a poison-laden atmosphere, they dine in the fashion here stated. Twelve hours a day, seven days every week, but there's no rest for these men. If a man dares to stay away from work on Sunday to attend church or chapel, he is punished by being compelled to lose Monday's wages also. There's no doubt that Lord Overton's reputation suffered following Keir Hardy's exposure of the working conditions at Shawfield. Unable to deny Hardy's accusations, the only way Lord Overton could defend himself was to maintain that he, senior partner of the firm, didn't know anything about the day-to-day goings-on at the Shawfield Works. According to his obituary, this was due to the heavy demands of his religious and public duties. However, you can't keep a good man down, and his lordship's good works continued. Let's go back a bit first. Well, there is no doubt that both James White of Overton and his son, now Lord Overton, were well known throughout the west of Scotland for their acts of philanthropy by donating to endless good causes, including many in their hometown of Rutherglen. Such as in 1884, Lord Overton donated £930 towards the erection of the new Evangelistic Institute in Green Bank Street 
an institute that went on to play a very important part in the lives of many Roglonians over the next 75 years. In his lifetime, Lord Overton donated huge sums toward evangelistic causes. It seems that his lordship could find money to save souls, but not the bodies of his workforce. But we'll let David continue. The Whites also bought over the old Free Church School building in Glasgow Road and converted it into the Shawfield Works Welfare Hall, which was a first-class hall that lasted well into the 1970s. In the early 1900s, his lordship purchased the lands of South Cross Hill and Brumenau Farms and converted them into Rutherglen's first-ever public park, a park that opened in 1907 and took the name Overton Park. Even Lord Overton's business partner and cousin, William James Crystal, in the year 1899, bought a hundred-yard stretch of land on the east side of Queen Street, between Main Street and King Street, and donated it to the Rutherland Corporation so they could demolish the public house and little quaint row of buildings which stood upon it as they wanted to widen the street. There was maybe more to that land gift by William James Crystal than we might think, as David will tell us later. But things are getting a bit heavy in this story. To end part one, here's a wee anecdote about Overton Park to lighten the mood a bit. Do you know about the three, the three faces? Uh, I don't know whether it's the, 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 the gods of the wind, rain and whatever, you know, um, but it's uh, three big stone faces, maybe three feet high and a foot and a half wide, mm. and they're in Overton Park. All right. They were inserted in Overton Park near the, um, the superintendent's house, the caretaker's house in the old days when it opened in 1970. Caretaker was still in up until the 1970s, mm. you know. Um, Anyway, in that garden, there's three stones, and those three stones come from Overton Estate, from the estate, from the house, the gardens at the estate. And they've been up here, I don't know when, whether mm. Lord, nobody knows whether Lord Overton donated them to the park. Yeah. But um, maybe about ten years ago, they disappeared. Really? They disappeared. Guess where they were found? Mm. In a front garden in Castlemilk. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. The back in Overton Park. The police were called to them. They were found in the front garden of a house in Castlemilk. Wow. That was a good wee one, a wee quaint one. That concludes part one of our history of White's Chemical Company. I hope you can join me for the second part when we'll follow the continuing fortunes of the White family. Look at the motives behind their philanthropy and examine the deadly environmental legacy left by the company. I'm Carrick MacDonald, and you've been listening to Halfway to Borough, the Two Towns local history show on Cam Glen Radio. Thanks to David Jackson for his huge contribution in making this programme, and to Tommy Torley for being the voice of Keir Hardy. Special thanks to Margaret Scott of Rutherland Heritage Centre for her help and support. Thanks also to David Cranston for giving me access to his library of local history books. In this programme, I've quoted freely from an excellent article on the subject by Dr David Walker of Strathclyde University's Department of History, published in the Scottish Labour History Journal in 2005. The music was by Shugal Nifty. If you've got any comments on this programme, or you've got some ideas for future local history programmes, please contact me by email, history at camglenradio.org. 
I hope you enjoyed this programme and that you can join me again next time. Until then, bye-bye. Sadly, David Jackson passed away unexpectedly on the 3rd of November 2020. David was the font of all knowledge when it came to the history of Rutherglen. A proud Raglonian and a well-kent figure around the town, he'll be greatly missed. How do you look after your teeth and gums? Brush your teeth um, every every time you wake up and at bedtime. Make sure you get like everywhere around your mouth, even the back of your teeth. If you kind of don't, then you'll have them fall out. If you don't look after your teeth, you'll get black and brown. To help keep your teeth and gums healthy, visit the dentist regularly. To register with a dentist, simply telephone or visit a practice in your area and ask if you can register with them. You can find a dentist near you using the NHS Inform service directory. If you have an event or activity happening in Campus
From West House to Stonewall, High Cross Hill to Cunnagarlook, and across the south east of Glasgow, this is Cam Glen Radio 107.9 FM. Yeah.